I read a story this week about a man, his name is Fiorello LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City during the Great Depression, and he was apparently a very colorful character. They called him the Little Flower. That was his nickname from New Yorkers because he was about five foot four and he always wore a carnation in his coat lapel. And he did things like this. He would ride around on the New York City fire trucks. He would go with the police when they would raid a bar. There were times that he took an entire orphanage to a baseball game. And then one time when the newspapers went on strike, he actually went on the radio and read the comics to the kids. Well, one bitterly cold night in January, the mayor turned up in night court, and this is in one of the poorest areas of New York, and he excused the judge for the night so that he could actually be the judge. So he took over the bench, <clears throat> and within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him, and she was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. Well, she told the mayor that her daughter's husband had deserted her, that her daughter was sick, and that her two grandkids were starving. But the shopkeeper from whom the bread was stolen refused to drop the charges. He said, Your Honor, it's a real bad neighborhood. She's got to be punished to teach others around here a lesson. Well, LaGuardia sighed and then turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. Well, even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his pocket to get a ten dollar bill. And so he placed it in his hat and said, This is to pay the ten dollar fine. And furthermore, I'm going to find everyone in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town <clears throat> where a person has to seal bread to feed her grandchildren. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. The following day, the New York City newspaper had an article that said this, $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread <clears throat> to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner himself. Now, isn't that a great story? And, and I want you to see that the, the heart of this story is something that's so important for us because the topic we're going to talk about today is something that reveals the heart of God to us. It's something that shows us the way that God wants us to live in this world. It's something that, that reconciles relationships and it is a very important part of God's goals for his people as the church because today we're going to talk about grace. In fact, let me give you a one-sentence summation of the entire message today. Are you ready? God wants our church to be a grace place. God wants Boynton Beach Community Church to be a grace place. Now, this morning, we're going to look at some verses from Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to begin with this question. What is grace? Now, for some people, it's a prayer that you say before you eat dinner. For others, it's the ability to know, navigate social situations with skill. Some would say grace is being nice to people who are mean. There were two Christian authors talking one time, Phil Yancey and, and Gordon McDonald. And they were talking, and Phil asked this question, what is the one thing the church has to offer that the world cannot get anywhere else? Now, you think about that. You don't have to be a Christian to build homes for the homeless or feed the poor or donate to charity. You don't have to be a Christian necessarily to offer wise moral instruction. So, what is the one thing the church has to offer that the world can't get any place else? Grace. God's amazing grace. Now look at these Bible verses about grace. This comes from Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed, when you put your faith in Christ. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can brag about it. So we can't boast because God did it for us. So what is grace? Here's the definition. It's on your outline. 
God's unmerited favor or kindness. It cannot be earned, it is not deserved, and it must be accepted as a free gift. Now, think about this. We live in a world where there is a distinct lack of grace. The opening story this morning was from the world of baseball. Think about baseball. Think about sitting at a baseball game, and there's the home plate umpire, and he blows a call at the plate. What are you likely to hear people yell at the umpire? Grace to you, Mr. Umpire. We know you blew the call. We forgive you. You'll get it right next time. No, you're likely to hear, kill the umpire. And that could be at a Little League game these days. Um, Maim the umpire might be a movement in the direction of grace. Or what about this? You're trying to merge onto I-95 during rush hour. Um, not much grace out there on I-95. I mean, can you imagine you're trying to get on, the person behind you does something that just kind of stuns you. They just do this. Just grace to you. Just go right in front of me, right? You're more likely to get a different kind of hand gesture that says, don't you dare go in front of me. This is my lane. So we live in a world where grace is, you might say, countercultural. And I was thinking this week that so many of the experiences that we have make it hard to wrap our minds around this idea that God wants to give us something absolutely free, something we don't earn, something we don't deserve. Because again, in the world of sports, if you're going to win an Olympic medal, do you have to work for it? Yeah, people train for years to win an Olympic medal. They don't just give those away. You deserve it when you stand on that medal podium. Or what about this, taking a test? When's the last time a teacher said, listen, it doesn't matter what you do, I'm just going to give everybody an A. It's a free gift. No, if you want that A, you have to study. You have to earn it. And you feel like, I've deserved this A because I worked so hard for it. Or what about this? Let's say you're a married couple and you invite some uh, other people, another couple to your house for dinner, right? And you have a great time and then you get an invitation from the couple that just had you over and you go, whoa, we can't go, we've got to invite them to our house first. We've got to even the score here somehow. Or what about this? It's Christmas time and the uh, UPS person knocks on your front door and they have a package for you and you look and you realize, hey, this is somebody that wasn't on my gift list. I don't have a, I don't have a present for them. So you frantically try to re-gift something that you didn't particularly want. Anybody ever do that? Why is that? Well, because we can't just receive the gift. We've got to even it up. This is something so important to understand. Look at the definition on your outline. Grace is God's unmerited favor or kindness. It cannot be earned. It is not deserved. <clears throat> and it must be accepted as a free gift. And I am thankful for the gift of water this morning. I want you to think about this. There are some key words in the Bible that are related to grace. One is justice. Now, what is justice? It's getting what you deserve, right? What is mercy? Well, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, here's a, a simple example. You're speeding down Boynton Beach Boulevard, and uh, you get pulled over by a police officer. What happens if you get justice? You get a ticket because that's what you deserve, right? Um, what if the officer says, listen, I'm just going to give you a warning today, no ticket. That is mercy because you are not getting what you deserve. But what if the police officer says, listen, um, I'm just going to give you a warning. By the way, I noticed that your tires are kind of worn, so here's $500 to get new tires. What, what is that? A miracle. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> Yeah, it could be considered that, I suppose. Uh, but it's a, a display of grace, right? 
because you, <laughs> you didn't get what you deserved, right? And it wasn't necessarily just mercy, not getting what you deserved. You got what you didn't deserve. And that's what God's grace is all about. Now, when you look at the concept of grace in the Bible, it's sort of like a diamond. There are all these facets of grace. You've got saving grace and transforming grace and sustaining grace and all this grace that pours into our lives. But I want us to look at two kinds of grace this morning. And the first is this, saving grace. And this is on your outline this morning. It says this, that saving grace creates spiritual life within a believer so that you can respond to the good news about Jesus with faith. And we looked at this idea last week that we come into the world with a heart that is spiritually dead. And God has to make us spiritually alive. He has to create faith in our hearts. He has to enable us to believe the bad news and the good news. And of course, the bad news really revolves around two problems that we can't fix. One is sin. And according to the Bible, sin is when we don't do what God commands us to do, which is to love him with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Nobody does that perfectly, and so we have broken God's laws. Now, because God is holy, that means that we're separated from him because he's holy and we're not because of our sin. But there is a consequence to our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. So we've got this sin problem, but we also have this other problem that apart from God's intervention, we're going to die and spend eternity apart from God. So that means we need God to step into our world and that's what the story of Jesus is all about. It's about God the Father sending God the Son to earth and Jesus living the life that we could never live. And what kind of life did Jesus live? A perfect life. He completely loved God and loved people and that uniquely qualifies him to go to a cross and die in our place. And that's the story of redemption, that God's willing to put our sin on Jesus and punish him in our place, that the wrath of God that we deserve against our sin is poured out in Christ. He dies, but he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he roars back to life and he offers us a new life as a free gift when we trust in him. Now, here's what I want you to really think about. When you become a Christian, when you say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, I give you my life, that's an act of God's grace, isn't it? And we receive that as a free gift. But what do you do at that point? Well, if you're going to follow Jesus, you still need God's grace every single day of your life. There is this grace that sustains us, this grace that gives us wisdom and joy and peace and patience, and that's the grace of God that each one of us needs. Now, here's an amazing truth about God's grace, that God calls people into his family and into his service who are neither worthy nor adequate. Now, think about that. God calls people into his family and into his service who are neither worthy nor adequate. I want you to know this morning, I am not worthy to serve as a pastor of this church. And I am not adequate to serve as the pastor of this church in and of myself. But in Christ, all of that changes. Because I am in Christ, because I've trusted Jesus, God has made me worthy because now when God looks at me, he sees the perfect record of his son. And that's true for every single Christian. When God calls you into his service, when God says, here's something I want you to do to carry out the mission of my son, sometimes we go, I just can't do that. I'm not adequate. And God says, oh, yes, you are. Because now you're connected to Christ. Now the Holy Spirit lives in you. So by connection to Jesus, God makes us worthy and adequate to be a part of his family and to carry out his mission in this world. And here's a beautiful verse about that. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are God's workmanship. And that word means masterpiece. We're a work of art 
created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, good things, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So God saves us by his grace, but he also transforms us by his grace. He's the potter, and we're the clay. And so look at the statement on your outline. It says this, transforming grace changes your heart and enables you to persevere in pursuing God's purpose for your life. Now, since that's true, there's a very important question. Okay, I get it. God wants to give me this grace. How do I get it? How can you connect with the grace that God wants to pour into your heart? Well, I'm going to point out four different ways. And here's the first, through prayer. Through prayer. Look at this Bible verse, a classic verse about prayer and grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace with what? What's the next word there? With confidence. Let us pray with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us. When? In our time of need. Listen, when you're in a time of need and you're praying, why should you expect God to hear you and answer you? What's your confidence? And would you say, hey, God, you know, I come to church um, every chance I get, and um, I, I put some money in the offering box um, a couple of times last month, and oh, by the way, I went to the ladies' Bible study. I'm going to the men's breakfast. I gave six pair of jeans to the pants drive. Is that why God hears us or answers us? Well, those are good things, but no, they're not. It's because of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Because Jesus is our confidence. Now, here's another way that we receive transforming grace. And let me just do this. Let me review because I really want you to get this. And not just get it, but do it. So what's the first way we receive God's grace? Prayer. Okay, here's the second, through Scripture. Through Scripture, through the Bible. Now, there's a story in the Bible about a time that um, Paul, and Paul, again, is the one who wrote this letter um, to believers in Ephesus that we've been studying but he was saying goodbye to this group of leaders, and this is what he says to them. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can, notice this, build you up. How many of you need somebody to build you up? We all do, because so often people are there trying to do what? Tear us down. And so God gives us grace in his word that builds us up. And notice this, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And again, being sanctified or the process of sanctification is a process of becoming more like Jesus. So how does God change our hearts? Well, through the grace that we receive in this book that we call the Bible. Now let me just show you a couple of passages real quickly that just point out the value of Scripture. One is from the book of Deuteronomy, and it says this, When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. And notice what he says next. They are not just idle words for you. They are your what? The words in this book are life-giving words. Jesus said that himself. My words are life. They create life. They sustain life. They help you understand and enjoy the life that you were made to live. They're life-giving words. And one more passage about the value of Scripture. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, this is Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past. Now, this is a specific reference to Old Testament stories. Everything written in the past was written to teach us. Why? So that through endurance and the encouragement of Scriptures, we might have hope. How many of you need endurance? and encouragement and hope we all do where does it come from it comes through God's word to us this is how God pours out his grace 
So first of all, what's the first avenue of grace? Prayer. What's the second? Scripture. And here's the third, and this one is really important, humility, through humility. Um, I want to share this story with you. It goes like this. The CEO of a Fortune 500 company pulled into a service station to get gas. He went inside to pay, and when he came out, he noticed his wife engaged in a deep discussion with a service station attendant. It turned out that she knew him. In fact, back in high school, before she met her eventual husband, she used to date this man. The CEO got in the car, and the two drove in silence. He was feeling pretty good about himself when he finally spoke. I bet I know what you were thinking. I bet you were thinking you're glad you married me, a Fortune 500 CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. No, his wife replied. I was thinking, if I married him, he would be the Fortune 500 CEO, and you would be the service station attendant. <laughs> Check out this verse. All of you. Who does that include? Yeah, all of us. All of us. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Listen, if we want to receive God's grace, it says that we have to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. What does that, what does that mean? Well, God allows things to come into our lives that can be really hard and really painful and difficult. And sometimes when that happens, instead of being humble, instead of accepting something from God's hand and submitting to what God is doing in our lives, what we do is this. We resist what God is doing. Or we complain about what God is doing. Or we worry about what God is doing. Or we get angry or rebel against what God is doing. And when our heart is set like that, we're not going to receive God's grace. Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And so when we humbly say, you know what, God? You're in charge. I'm not. And I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that you love me and that your plans are best for me. It's when we have that kind of heart that God pours out his grace in our lives. So let's review. What's the first way that we receive grace? Prayer. What's the second way? Scripture. What's the third way? Humility. Good. Good. Now here's the last way. Through other believers. We have the privilege of being conduits of grace to other people, especially in our church family. Check out this verse from 1 Peter. It says this. Each one should use whatever gift he has received. Now, this is talking about spiritual gifts. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to make a lot of money. No, oh, it doesn't say that. It says to do what? To serve others. And notice this phrase, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That means that we have the privilege and responsibility to be grace providers to each other. And why is that important? Because so often we have other people in our lives that are grace impaired. And these are people that do not provide grace. They don't build us up. In fact, they often tear us down. They criticize us. They, they make us feel bad about ourselves. So the question is, how do you spot a grace provider? And here's, here's a, a simple way to do that. They're people who actually pay attention to you. Um, they notice the sad look on your face, and they say, hey, are you okay? And they actually want to hear the answer. Grace providers are those people that have the courage to tell you the truth because they love you and they're concerned about you. 
Grace providers are people who, when they see the imperfections in your heart, when they see the darkness in your soul, they don't run from you, they run to you because they love you. And we all need people like that in our lives. So look at this next question. How do you give grace to others? How do you do it? And just two, two ways to do that. The first is this, by being patient. And again, this comes right from Paul's pen in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Now, I was thinking of a real practical example of this, and this is what I came up with. How many of you, and you can raise your hand on this um, if you're so inclined, how many of you would say that you're a very punctual person? You're almost always on time. Okay, wow. All right, so here's a follow-up question. (laughs) How many of you are punctuality impaired? Okay, a few more. And some of you are sitting next to somebody that maybe you're married to and like one person put their hand up and then the other hand went up. That happens a lot. So here's my question. And and by the way, just um, for self-disclosure, I'm in the first group. I try to be a punctual person. Now, here's my question to you punctual people. When somebody who's punctuality impaired shows up late, do you get a little irritated? Okay, you didn't have to tell me that because I already knew it. (laughs) So what do you do? And here's, here's the point. Now, I'm not saying that punctuality is not important, okay? And there's always things that need to be worked out. But how we respond in our heart is critically important because do we respond with patience? Because that's, that's what you do when you're extending grace. And I'll tell you this, when it comes to being patient with people, sometimes I think about this, how patient God has been with me over the course of my life. I mean, it is absolutely un believable to me sometimes how patient God has been and when I think about that it helps me be more patient with other people and that also applies to this other way to extend grace by being forgiving by being forgiving look at this verse again from Ephesians it says this be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you and I think about this that I'm never going to have to forgive somebody more than what God has forgiven me. And as we think about this, this waterfall of grace, this incredible grace that Jesus provides by his sacrifice, that can enable us to extend grace, to extend forgiveness to others. And we're going to talk about that more next week. But let me just go to the last question on your outline this morning. What is the result of giving grace to others? I mean, what does it look like when we actually do what God is telling us to do? And there are three things. Let me give you all three. Unity, Harmony and reconciliation. That's what happens when we actually act in gracious ways toward each other. Now, where do we need unity and harmony and reconciliation? Well, we need those things in our homes, don't we? And in our families. We need unity and harmony and reconciliation in our churches across the nation, across the world. And speaking of our nation, do we need unity, harmony, and reconciliation in America? I mean, big time. Our nation is so divided. I mean, think about the things that divide us. You know, one is racial prejudice. So often, political discourse these days focuses on the issue of race. And sometimes it focuses on ideology because ideology divides us. You've got people that are um, liberals and those who are conservatives, and you've got the left and the right and the far left and the far right, and you've got this division because of ideology. And we have division in our country because of economics. You've got the poor and the very poor and the middle class and the upper middle class and the rich and the uber rich. So there's all this division. But here's what I want you to see. That's nothing new. 
When Jesus came to our world, it was a world divided. And in Jesus' day, there was a huge divide between the Jews and the Gentiles because the Gentiles were just everybody who's not a Jew. All these other nations, all these other cultures. And here's the thing. This, this divide in the world when Jesus arrived on the scene was a religious divide, an economic divide, a cultural divide. Jesus' mission was to close the divide, to bring people together through his grace so that they in turn could extend grace to one another. Now here's what's so important to understand when it comes to bringing people together, this idea of unity and harmony and reconciliation. The Bible says this about Jesus Christ. He came from the Father full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. And Jesus never compromised the truth. He never sacrificed the truth in order to bring about unity. And that's true of us. The unity that God desires is not based on compromising or sacrificing the truth. The unity that God desires is based on embracing the truth because God's truth is an absolute truth. It applies to people in every place, in every generation. And that's so important. Now, here's a verse. This is the last verse we're going to look at this morning about Jesus' mission to bring about this unity. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2, Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. And Paul here is talking about Jews and Gentiles, people of different cultures and languages and economic situations coming together because of Jesus. He says, Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders, talking about all the Gentiles, everybody who's a non-Jew, and peace to us insiders, the Hebrew nation. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, through Christ, we both share the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit, and have equal access to the Father. Isn't that beautiful? That Jesus, as he extends grace to us, brings us together, and as we extend that grace to each other, that's what causes unity and harmony and reconciliation in our families, in our churches, in our nations, and even in the world. Now let me do this. Let me close with a story. It's... I think one of the most compelling stories I've ever encountered about grace. And it's from a book. It's called Love Beyond Reason by John Ortberg. And it goes like this. This story is about a woman named Agnes who ran into a grace provider named Tony. Traveling in Hawaii but still on Eastern Standard Time, Tony wandered into a diner at 3 in the morning. The only other customers were a group of prostitutes who had just finished for the night, one of whom was named Agnes. Agnes mentioned that tomorrow was her birthday and that she had never in her life had a birthday party. After they left, Tony found out from Harry, the guy behind the counter, that they came each night to this diner. Tony asked if he could come back the next night and throw a party for Agnes. Harry said okay, but only on the condition that his wife could do the cooking and that he be allowed to make the cake. At 2.30 the next morning, and this is from the perspective of Tony, at 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store and had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that said, Happy birthday, Agnes! The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30, the door of the diner opened and in came Agnes with her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted. 
Her mouth fell open and her legs buckled. When we finished singing, her eyes moistened, and when the cake was carried out, she started to cry. Harry gruffly mumbled, Blow the candles, Agnes, come on. If you don't blow them out, I'm going to have to do it myself. Finally, he did. The cutting of the cake took even longer. Cut the cake, Agnes. We all want some cake now. Agnes said, Look, Harry, if it's okay, I'd like to keep the cake a little while. Is it okay if I do that? Sure, you can keep it if you want. You can even take it home. Can I? Then Agnes said, looking at me, I, I just live down the street. I want to take the cake home. Okay, I'll be right back. She carried that cake out of the door like it was the Holy Grail. We stood there motionless, a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, Hey, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seemed more than strange that I would be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner in Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning, but it just felt like the right thing to do. So I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed. I prayed that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said with a trace of irritation, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words come, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry waited a moment and almost seemed to sneer as he answered, No, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? Because that's the kind of church Jesus came to create. Let's pray. Lord, that really is a good word because that's your heart. Lord, you went places that nobody else would go. You spent time with prostitutes and tax collectors and, and people that nobody else would hang out with. People that nobody else seemed to care about. That's because of your grace. And Lord, you've been gracious to us. Lord, for every believer in this room, you came and you found us. When we were lost, you were the shepherd who tracked us down and brought us home. And God, we are so incredibly grateful for your grace. And we just want to say, Lord, we need that grace today. Lord, for, for all the issues, the pressures, the problems, the pain that, that are in people's lives in this room right now, I pray for your amazing grace. The grace that sustains us and strengthens us and helps us keep on going. And God, I want to pray this morning for the one who maybe, as they've listened to this whole message about grace, they've realized, well, I've never really asked for God's grace in my life. I've never trusted Jesus. Father, I pray that today, that they would respond to your call, your invitation, to come into your family by trusting Jesus, by accepting the free gift of grace that changes everything. And listen, with all of our heads bowed right now, if that's you, you can just talk to God. You can have a conversation with God that begins today and continues for the rest of your life that changes your life by simply saying, God, I need you. God, I, I know that, that I've failed in so many ways. I, I'm a sinner, God. I need a Savior. And I understand that his name is Jesus because he's perfect and I'm not. And I know that he died on the cross, but, but I believe today it was for my sins he died. And then he came back to life to give me a new life. And God, I really need one. So I'm just going to tell you today, I am choosing to follow your son wherever he leads me. 
God, I know that that prayer is, is powerful, that you hear that prayer because of your grace. And I pray today, Father, that as we come to the end of the service, that we'll just leave this place today with eyes wide open, seeing the avenues of grace. God, would you please do this? Would you please help us understand that we need to pray and we need to read your word and we need to be humble and we need each other because we need your grace. And Father, as you fill our hearts and our lives with grace, help us to be quick to give that grace to others. Father, I know this, that you want Boynton Beach Community Church to have more influence in this community and in this world. And that will happen as we become the grace place you call us to be. And as we sing this last song, God, as we talk about grace like rain, may that grace fill our hearts. And we pray this in the name of the gracious one, our Savior Jesus. Amen. Church, let's sing and, and worship God together.